We are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. So yes, there's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy. That people don't feel that they can do very much. You know what this is? This is a very Hamiltonian system. Alexander Hamilton being the guy here in a very un-Jeffersonian. In the case of the Republicans, it's dramatically the opposite. Uh, but even in the case of the Democrats. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans in the South. America's fascists are those people who think that Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. We're really seen as a financial sector that's uh, gotten out of hand. The shooting, the violence, that is not the drug problem. That is, in fact, the drug policy problem. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. And I bet our guest recognizes many of those voices. Our guest today writes, As an institution, the military is accorded carte blanche authority to possess and wield violence on behalf of the state. End of quote. That's why the military is under the control of civilian government. In a republic, the military is to be subservient to civilian authority. When the civilian government is subservient to the military, that is a different form of government, sometimes called fascism, sometimes called the police state. Here we are well into the 21st century, and in America there's a new yet pervasive, worshipful reverence for all things military. Perhaps is it, a, is it a dangerous overreaction to the pervasiveness of criticism of things military during the era of America's war in Vietnam. Our guest today has written an article focusing on what he calls the outsized presence of the military in American life and statecraft. Our guest is Gregory Foster, who teaches at the National Defense University and is a decorated Vietnam veteran. He writes, Perhaps it is time we finally ask, whatever happened to old-fashioned civilian control over the U.S. military? He also asked a second, more ominous question. These days, who controls the civilians? Foster's article on Tom Dispatch is titled, Let's Demilitarize the Military. The Pentagon may pose the single greatest threat to our democracy. Greg Foster, thanks so much for being with us on Keeping Democracy Alive. What stimulated you to write this article? Uh, well, I've been following... Uh military affairs my uh, entire professional life, from the time that I was uh, a cadet at West Point to uh, my commissioned service as an officer, and uh, subsequently uh, for the past 30 years or so uh, on the uh, faculty of the National Defense University. I teach civil-military relations, and so I have been uh, intensely interested in looking at in scrutinizing uh, that uh, that relationship that ties the military to its civilian overseers, both executive and legislative, and to society in general. And so that is uh, uh, what has brought me and brought me to and kept me with this subject for lo these many years. Yeah, things have changed quite a bit. Now, I was active in the war against the war in Vietnam, and right or wrong, I had the impression at the time that 
while the responsibility, of course, rested with the policymakers who got us in and kept our young men, I don't think there were any women at the time, kept our young men in that unwinnable war during that era, pretty much all things military were, frankly, very much out of favor. And though its a- accuracy is very much in doubt, we remember the stories of protesters spitting on returning veterans. I don't know if that ever happened. Over 40 years or so, do you think what we see today, reverence for all things military, may be in part an overreaction to that picture? Uh, indeed, I do. I, in fact, I would be so bold as to say there's no question about that. It is a, uh, indeed a, uh, an overreaction to uh, overcompensate, I think, for uh, yeah. feelings of guilt uh, and at the same time to uh, at least implicitly play off of the fact that so, so few serve in the military today that there is uh, a lot of ignorance uh, on the part of the general public and, uh, and I think as well there is uh, some expectation that whereas they may have opposed the military during the Vietnam era, they should support it almost unquestioningly today. Yeah, yeah, I, I certainly agree with that. I've, I've just, it's such a 180-degree difference. Now, wh- while we're on the subject of that lovely little war, Vietnam, huh, one feature of that war was then called Mission Creep, and a, f- a few more and a few more and a few more American troops were sent there, while the citizens of our country clearly wanted to scale back after not very long, if not pull out entirely from our very nebulous missions these days in Afghanistan, Iraq, and now Libya and Somalia. It seems mission creep is with us once again. If the people don't want that, how does it happen anyway? Is the military now calling the shots? Are they in control of our foreign policy? Well, the military is by implication calling the shots but uh that's a uh, that's a difficult statement to uh, to to make and defend it is clear that civilian decision makers are in positions of authority for calling those shots but they also are highly dependent on military advice uh they want to appear to be uh, tough on defense and security they want to appear to be decisive uh, they, and the they I'm talking about, again, is civilian decision-makers, uh, they, in essence, have um, uh, subjugated themselves, I think, to, uh, to military practices and advice and ways of doing business. The military seems to be uh, a decisive exercise of uh, power, and they are very much inclined to uh, defer uh, to military ways of doing business, and that's the situation we're in now, not least because uh, so many of our civilian authorities, positions, uh, people in positions of authority over the military have not had military experience <laughs> themselves, Yeah, that's... and they are, for the most part, I think, running scared, lest they be characterized as weak on defense or, or security. And so uh, rather than having what I think is an ideal situation of civilian supremacy over the military, uh, and at a minimum, civilian control over the military, I think they have, in essence, 
subjugated themselves to the military. So it seems, and it makes me kind of yearn for uh, uh, former General Dwight David Eisenhower. He had seen war, and, and he scaled back and got us out of the Korean War, and you know those people who have who have seen war, boy, I would think they would uh, they would know a little bit better. If you just tuned in to Keeping Democracy Alive, Bert Cohen here. Our guest is Gregory Foster, who teaches at National Defense University and is a decorated Vietnam veteran. He knows whereof he speaks with regard to uh, the longing for and the need for civilian control over the military, and it does seem that. You know, in this presidential year, all of the contenders, with the exception of Bernie Sanders, are trying to outdo each other in terms of their hawkishness and kowtowing to the military establishment. What does this say about the overall weakening of civilian control and strengthening of military control over foreign policy decisions? And, and why should we be concerned about that? Well, again, I think it is uh, very much a reflection of the fact that uh None of these folks has uh, served in uniform, and uh, so they want to uh, avoid uh, perceptions that they are somehow weak or indecisive. And the natural inclination, therefore, is given a widespread degree of ignorance about uh, what the military can and can't do, what it should and shouldn't do, what it must and mustn't do, Uh, they are inclined uh, almost solely to uh, deferring to military judgments and military ways of doing business because they don't have, um, uh, it it perhaps does a disservice to some, but I think in in fact it's uh, a a defensible generalization that they, uh, uh, they are operating off of a base of considerable ignorance about the military, and so they find themselves having no other choice but to defer. And, and that, uh, Go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, I, I was reading actually in today's New York Times, talking about uh, Hillary Clinton, who is challenging Bernie Sanders for the nomination, saying that she is trying to appear muscular. And, you know, that posing, that looking tough, how many people got to die? How many people have to lose limbs? How many families have to suffer? It just, it's amazing to me. And, you know, I wonder about civilian, you know, civilian control over the military. Is it merely tradition or is there actually a law about that? What is the law about civilian control over the military in these currently United States? Well, it is uh, predominantly tradition, but it also is... uh grounded in law, uh, not least in the Constitution. Uh, Article 2, Section 2 of the Constitution prescribes that the President shall be Commander-in-Chief of the Army and Navy of the United States and of the militia of the several states when called into federal service. Uh, Article 1, Section 8, of course, gives Congress the power to provide for the common defense, to declare war, to raise and support armies, to provide and maintain a navy, uh, etc. And in fact, if you go a a bit deeper, um, Title 50 of the United States Code of Laws uh, states very clearly it is the, uh, and forgive me here, but let me quote this, it is the intent of Congress, among other things, to provide a Department of Defense, including the three military departments, to provide 
that each military department shall be separately organized and shall function under the direction, authority, and control of the civilian secretary of defense Mm -hmm. and to provide for their unified direction under, and these are the specific words, civilian control of the secretary of defense. And so there is, uh, there is much tradition here, but, um, most folks who deal with this subject recognize that it is grounded very firmly in the Constitution. Uh, and in fact, uh, during the famous uh, Truman-MacArthur yes. controversy, um, when President Truman relieved Douglas MacArthur, uh, both of those individuals, uh, after the fact, in reflecting on that situation, invoked the Constitution as the justification for what they did. Hmm. Truman, in particular, using the Constitution as a basis to um, justify civilian control over the military. Yeah, it seems like uh, I think he did the right thing. I mean, uh, uh, MacArthur, I believe, was interested in uh, taking the Korean War well into China, which, you know, the, the foreign, the, the, the civilian control has to be there for something like that. You know, it might have been yes. g- great uh, uh, fun for General MacArthur, but uh, it probably would not have been a good idea to bring the war into uh, uh, China. And, and you write uh, in the article on Tom Dispatch, if we enjoyed a truly healthy state of civil-military relations, it would be characterized by a strategically, not just a militarily, effective force. You go on to say, the military we have today is arguably ineffective, not only militarily, but demonstrably strategically as well. What what does that mean? Please explain that. Uh, That sounds like a somewhat pedantic distinction, but uh, I am willing to make the claim that a a military that is militarily effective is not necessarily strategically effective. In (laughs) fact, it may be quite the opposite if it is uh, disproportionately destructive or indiscriminately lethal uh, or uh, exorbitantly expensive Mm. uh, or the military becomes alienated from society, uh, any of those sorts of characteristics, or it is provocative and escalatory, all of these things I think one can legitimately make the defensible argument to our military is today. We, we don't prevent wars anymore. We don't win wars. We haven't won one in a technical sense for 70 years, and we certainly, we, I say, uh, our military certainly doesn't secure and preserve peace. And um, ultimately, what I think the overarching strategic aim of a democratic state such as ours should be, mm-hmm. uh, would be to attain and secure and preserve a sustainable peace. And not only do we not do that, but we, uh, in fact, feed militarism around the globe because of our provocative and escalatory military posture. And one certainly, uh, very well stated, I have to say, I, I, I don't think one can say that ISIS came about 
only because of America's war in Iraq, but it certainly, at the very least, exacerbated it. And I just, would there be an ISIS had we not invaded Iraq and made such a huge mess of Iraq? I don't know. But it certainly gives the other side great ability to recruit new people. If you can point to how bad, you know, the U.S. military is. We didn't win in Iraq. We didn't win in Vietnam. I don't think there's any way we can win in Afghanistan or Iraq. Is there something essentially wrong with our concept now of what winning means? Is is that definition no longer no longer applicable i mean we won world war ii but nothing really since i think uh winning or victory as we have traditionally known it is uh essentially meaningless in today's world i think the uh, uh the violent conflicts that we face uh always of choice i might add not of necessity even though politicians, uh, as you might expect, are wont to argue that these are wars or conflicts of necessity. These are wars of choice, and they are inherently, I believe, unwinnable. Uh, no matter how much force we use, uh, it, uh, it won't uh, put the quietus on these sorts of precipitants that bring about these conflicts to begin with. And in fact, as you yourself have stated, uh, I'm convinced that uh, the more we try to engage in these conflicts militarily, the more we just feed the opposite of what we want. We presumably want security and stability. What instead we produce is insecurity and instability by our, not only by our presence, but by our, shall we say, uh, overbearing presence, our yeah. arrogant presence. Yeah, yeah, and and we here, you know, we're, we're sheltered by the Pacific on one side and the Atlantic on the other. We may not get that, but the people in the various uh, countries where we have this very aggressive presence, uh, boy, they certainly know it. I heard a story recently from, and you may have heard this story too, Greg Foster, from a, a soldier who was in Iraq and after some firefight or something, he bent down to reassure this six-year-old girl. She instantly ran away in absolute terror. Along these lines, you write of today's military, wherever it goes, it provokes and antagonizes where it should reassure. I wonder if you could speak to that a little bit and, and maybe how that could be changed. Uh, well, I that is why I... Um in your introduction, you alluded to the fact that I had uh, perhaps, in contradictory fashion, perhaps counterintuitively, had called for, in essence, demilitarizing the military. Uh, and that, in fact, is what I think ultimately, in a strategic sense, we need to set about doing. I, I think so long as we continue to view the military and to uh, equip the military and structure the military as a war-fighting force, uh, that is the kind of reaction, the reaction of the little girl, I think we are going to precipitate. Uh, so I call for, uh, and of course this is uh, 
this will, will be viewed by critics as totally impractical, infeasible, uh, right. and the like. But I mm-hmm. call for a military that, uh, rather than focusing on preparing for and waging war, uh, a military whose uh, principal functions, whose principal purpose is uh, peacekeeping, nation-building, humanitarian assistance, and disaster response. And uh, There are obvious counter-arguments to that. Yeah. Uh, the typical one is that there are other agencies or institutions to do those things, but I think the only way the military can be rid or ridded of its uh, image as a source of militarism and militarization is to repurpose the military and redefine, to take the lead in defining what militaries properly do. And And I think that's the only way we will reach a point where the military can provide reassurance and stability and the like where it now does not. And and just a, a little bit to, to go over some of your background, your bona fides, if you will. You were in Vietnam. What what period there, and and what kind of uh, what was it like then? And what I, I can't help but think that that gave you a tremendous education, one that you maybe weren't expecting and didn't really want. Uh, it did. I learned a lot while I was there. Uh, I first of all, I should say I'm. Uh, I'm a graduate of the U.S. Military Academy at West Point, and when I graduated and was commissioned in the infantry, I was uh, super gung-ho. Mm-hmm. I was uh, I was conservative uh, at that point in my life where others my age uh, mm-hmm. on the outside back home were, were quite the opposite. Right. So when I went to Vietnam, I was... Uh, gung-ho, and I went through all of this training that one does, like airborne and jump master and ranger training that uh, merely uh, reinforced and accentuated uh, my my gung-ho mm-hmm. tendencies. I was a uh, an infantry company commander in what was then the AmeriCal Division. The AmeriCal Division was the same division that was responsible for the My Lai Massacre, right. as well as other very unfortunate uh, mm-hmm. events. In fact, I was in the same brigade as the uh, as the company and the battalion that was responsible for My Lai. So on, I have to say that I, uh, um, I met some of the finest men I have ever met in that, uh, in that environment, uh, most of whom were draftees and uh, were not there because they wanted to be, but the, but yeah. the fact that they were there uh, didn't inhibit them from doing their job the way they thought it should be done. Uh, although I had gone through a lot of advanced training, uh, I was I came to recognize totally ill-equipped to operate in uh, that type of situation in the way I should have been equipped. I didn't have language skills. I was culturally quite ignorant. And uh, uh, on the other hand, I was with a unit that operated well out in the field, away from populated areas. So I didn't have to deal with the kinds of uh, disciplinary issues that 
one faced in interacting with uh, uh, the civilian population, which is what, of course, produced me lie. Yeah, yeah. Well, whew, thank you for that. So it, it, it's, you know, you know from the inside there. And, uh, you know, again, it seems to me as a civilian what what we want is security. We We want to have we want to be defended from the bad guys we want to be safe at home and i have to say september 11th i remember you know that day thinking that after probably trillions of dollars spent for national defense and we were sitting ducks essentially without any shred of defense against the one actual effective attack on the homeland and you say that today's is your quote, today's principal adversaries have been so uniformly effective in employing asymmetric methods as a form of strategic jujitsu to turn our presumed strengths into crippling weaknesses. I wonder if you could speak about that a little bit. Uh, yes, I, uh, we have, um, uh, over time, uh, come to believe that, uh, the, the bigger we are, the, uh, stronger we are, uh, the more we spend on defense, uh, that somehow that uh, endows us with uh, uh, advantageous capabilities. And I think we live in an age now where very clearly uh, all of those things that we have come to view as advantages uh, can be very easily and very quickly turned to disadvantage. Our, our size, uh, the robustness of our presence, the, uh, again, to go back to terms I used earlier, disproportionately destructive and indiscriminately lethal, um, those are things that uh, are easily turned against us. Uh, 9-11 deals with another dimension of this, and that is uh, social cohesion and national unity and national will. Uh, by striking at the population in ways that uh, I think it's fair to say militarily uh, we were not prepared to counter, Uh, that has a debilitating effect strategically. It strikes at the heart of uh, who we are. Uh, It's struck at symbols that have come to represent America. It's struck at the... uh, the heart and soul of the American populace and uh, the military and the intelligence apparatus that complements it and supported it, uh, support it, uh, were, in essence, uh, helpless. Helpless. After all that, helpless. And it seems, you know, as time goes on, the bad guys, who are pretty bad, ISIS and, and their ilk, they know this. And, you know, when, when, when generals always, as you know in history, always fight the last war. And Indeed. <laughs> the, the, it's something completely different now. They know how to strike. And, I mean, September 11th was incredibly effective at, at causing us to, you know, give up many of our freedoms by, by passing something like the Patriot Act and, you know, the, the, the attacks in Paris and Brussels. It just goes on and on and on, and it's it's cheap and it's easy for them. Uh, and if you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, 
keeping democracy alive. Again, it's a joint effort. We all got to be involved. Uh, our guest today is uh, Gregory Foster, who teaches at the National Defense University, a decorated Vietnam veteran. And uh, his new article on Tom Dispatch's title, Let's Demilitarize the Military. The Pentagon may pose the single greatest threat to our democracy. Uh, well, I- in your article, you spell out at some length, and it's important to do so, five key areas where militarism has come to rule and, as you say, quote, accentuated all manner of insecurity in the process, end of quote. Our defense apparatus uh, increasing our insecurity? Wow, that, 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 that's, talk a bit about those five areas you say are key to this problem. Well, I talk about five in particular, uh, what I characterize as rapacious defense spending. Uh, I point out that the uh, the U.S. military budget exceeds that of the next 10 countries combined, and in fact, uh, our budget exceeds the gross domestic products of all but 20 countries. Uh, The military budget uh, represents 54% of federal discretionary spending, so it thereby surpasses all other discretionary accounts like uh, government, education, the discretionary part of Medicare, veterans' benefits, housing, international affairs, energy, the environment, transportation, agriculture. Um, And there are many other things that uh, one could argue, I would argue, uh, we could more fruitfully uh, be spending that money on to uh, truly demonstrate that uh, we are a the superpower we claim to be. Mm. I talk secondly about mm-hmm. promiscuous arms sales. Um, we account for some 50% of all global conventional arms sales and 40% of all sales to the developing world. And so I enumerate uh, some of the advanced weapons sales we made during the period 2011 to 2014, as documented by the Congressional Research Service, uh, much of that to the volatile Middle East. Hmm. And so the point there is that uh, rather than producing stability, uh, rather than, uh, as defenders would say, enabling countries to better defend themselves, in fact, we are feeding militarism and uh, trying to buy influence abroad through arms sales at the same time that we're aiding and abetting arms manufacturers here at home. I talk about our garrisoning of the planet. Um, Numerous sources have pointed to the some 800 bases we now have spread Hmm. around the world in some 70 countries. And uh, beyond that, we have... Depending on whose estimates you listen to, well over 200,000 active duty personnel in some 150 countries. Um, My point there is that uh, the more we spread ourselves across the globe, the more uh, potential there is for both operational and social entanglements. So Mm -hmm. when I subsequently in the article enumerate uh, the many, many forms of misconduct that have been perpetrated by uh, individuals in uniform, uh, many of those have been uh, 
prompted by our overseas presence. Uh, I talked thirdly about what I characterize as the nuclear black hole, the fact that we uh, remain the permanent keeper and executor of the world's largest nuclear arsenal, and in fact we are in the process of undertaking a three-decade trillion-dollar upgrade of this monstrous arsenal. Oh, my. Um, and wow. The point there is that um, uh, for the most part, these are weapons of uh, total disuse. Their only value is as a measure of muscularity against what I and others have called mirror image peers like uh, wow. China and Russia. They they deter nothing at other levels of muscle flexing, but they certainly feed a thirst on the part of the Irans and North Koreas and others of the world to uh, to emulate us. Wow, interesting. Uh, I, I talk about spurning the rule of law, and I talk about the many international agreements that largely for military reasons we have either not signed or have not ratified, and some of those are quite familiar. The Mine Ban Treaty of 1997, the uh, uh, the Cluster Munitions Treaty, uh, and the like, the um, uh, the International Criminal Court, Rome Statute, these are all treaties to which we are not a party. Uh, and then I, in fact, uh, hearken back to other long-standing uh, international agreements, even to the 1928 Kellogg-Briand General Treaty for the Renunciation of War, which we uh, thereafter summarily rejected and dismissed, even though it passed by an overwhelming majority. Uh, in the Senate. Uh, I talk about the 1968 uh, Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, which calls for denuclearization and reaching uh, uh, comprehensive uh, universal agreement on uh, the elimination of nuclear weapons and and others. Uh, And then I I go on to, to talk about what I would characterize as uh, as pedantic as this may sound organizational hypertrophy um, yeah I hadn't heard that word before what, what do you mean by well that? it's uh, shall we say um, an over muscularization or overdevelopment of uh, organizations that have uh, uh, military purposes and military characteristics there are uh, 16 uh, separate agencies in the intelligence apparatus, uh, of course. Nine of those are military organizations, if you count the Coast Guard. Uh, And if you were to count the Department of Homeland Security intelligence capability, that would uh, make it even 10. Uh, These defense intelligence organizations include the National Security Agency, of course, uh, which is a discussion in and of itself. The military has organized itself into nine combatant commands, six of which are regional commands that uh, basically divvy up the planet uh, into uh, military areas of operational responsibility, including now a U.S. 
Northern Command, which uh, I would argue in conjunction with the Department of Homeland Security has uh, militarized the domestic front. It has uh, dispensed with historical border sensitivities vis-a-vis Canada and Mexico, and it has magnified concerns about civil liberties, while at the same time feeding the sort of uh, paranoia and alarm we hear in the presidential campaign now about illegal immigration and terrorism. And finally, I point to the, uh, the U.S. Special Operations Command, which is one of the nine combatant commands, and I talk about the, uh, uh, the expansion and the increasing use of special operations forces, which uh, already stand at or are expected soon to stand at some 70,000 special operations troops. That's the equivalent of roughly four and a half army divisions. And the point I would make here in closing this long-winded response to your that's question... A, that's what I, it's fine. Go ahead. ...is to say that um, there is this inbuilt momentum that has built up to employ special operations forces, uh, which basically represent a great threat, I think, to uh, civilian control of the military, because these are forces that uh, engage in uh, covert operations, and uh, those are things which are easily employed to circumvent uh, effective oversight. And in a government such as ours now, a divided government, uh, the temptation to escape such oversight is, uh, is very strong. It's very, uh, uh, it is, in fact, a temptation. And so uh, without uh, a critical free press, mm. much of what they do is unknown to the American public by design. Wow, that's some, that, I hate to use the word intense, but that's, that is really intense. And the, the lack of a, I mean, I, I, the lack of a, of, of a, of a press, I mean, Thomas Jefferson talked about how crucial a free press was to keeping democracy alive and that we don't have it now. We have a compliant press here. And again, what you were saying about, you know, secret operations, the, the Constitution was very clear. Our founders intended Congress to have the power to declare war. Well, we haven't declared war, I don't think, since the Second World War. All these others have been, well, Korea was a police action. Vietnam was some kind of conflict. Uh, and going around the intent of the Constitution, that's bad stuff. I mean, our founders knew what they were talking about. And all these candidates, uh, especially the Republicans, talk about uh, you know allegiance to the Constitution and bringing back the Constitution. I don't think they know what's in there. They, they just uh, use these words, throw them around, and we have become so much more insecure, I think one could argue. And, and as you were describing the, the bureaucratization uh, of, of the military, it, it, I, I got this picture of you know, a, a uh, bodybuilder becoming so muscle-bound, so incredibly muscle-bound, that that body can't even work. 
here we were right. sitting ducks when we were actually attacked. Wow, if you just tuned in, and there's so much more, I mean, how it's affecting us domestically. If you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. We are on Keeping Democracy Alive, our guest. Some powerful stuff. Gregory Foster teaches at the National Defense University, a Vietnam veteran, and uh, we're talking about uh, civilian control over the U.S. military. And going along with this, in recent years, our allegedly self-policing military has, as you point out, seen, quote, moral arrogance in abundant supply among those in uniform, genuine moral superiority in short supply. You number, cite a number of examples. Would you please mention a few and talk about why this is such a concern? Uh, yeah, if I may, let me uh, add a little bit of context here, which I oh, sure. provided up front in my article by saying at the very outset that uh, I think there is a tacit but binding social contract yes. that ties the parties to this relationship together. The military itself, the military's civilian overseers in both the executive branch and the Congress and society as a whole. This is a social contract of, uh, of mutual rights and obligations and, and expectations. And I think four things are expected of the military. I think the military is expected to be operationally competent. I think it is expected to be a source of sound advice to civilian decision makers. I think it is expected to be politically neutral, which is a subject in itself we could talk about. And I think it is expected to be socially responsible. The military is not only uh, an operational organization that does military things, but it is a, it is a massive institution that reaches throughout American society and into other societies as well. And so I think there, even though it may not be immediately obvious to everyone and certainly not articulated, there is some underlying expectation on the part of the citizenry mm -hmm. that those in uniform comport themselves uh, in a manner that is socially responsible, that... Uh, that mirrors and lives up to uh, the values and the principles and the ideals that uh, we as a society presume to stand for. Yes. So I concentrate in this article on both the operational end of things, which we have already discussed right. at length, but also what I would call the failure of social responsibility. And I enumerate just yeah. a sample mm -hmm. of the literally hundreds of incidents that occur each year and have occurred each year for easily the past two decades that reflect um, misconduct on the part of those in uniform. And that's why I make the distinction between moral arrogance and true bona fide moral superiority. So when we are able to become aware of, typically through the press or through non-governmental investigative organizations, when we become aware of atrocities and corruption and bribery and fraud and waste and sexual misconduct and cover-ups and racial and religious persecution and acts of cultural intolerance, 
that's what we're talking about. And literally, I have I have tracked these for a number of years. Uh, these these types of incidents occur in the hundreds mm. each year, and we only find out about the ones we find out about right. typically through the press. So I I enumerate many scandals uh, that we have read about in the press. I won't I won't do that here unless you want a sample of those. But uh, there are yeah. so many as to be uncountable. We've all mm. heard of Abu Ghraib and mm-hmm. Haditha, and we're generally aware of Marines urinating on mm-hmm. dead Afghan bodies and soldiers posing with body parts and burning Korans, and we have we have heard about the many sexual assaults that occur within the military many. each year. Mm-hmm. Um, so those are just a, uh, a small sample of a small sample of a much bigger population of uh, uh, incidences of misconduct that uh, afflict the military. And yet I'm quick to point out, I recognize this full well, this is this is kind of a paradox to me. Uh, mm-hmm. If you look at annual opinion polls conducted by Gallup and Harris and others mm-hmm. uh, that query the American public on the trust and confidence they have in various institutions in our society, mm-hmm. invariably, virtually without exception, the military always finishes at the top or near the top in public trust and confidence. So this is... Uh, a reflection of the fact that, in my estimation, there is a crisis at hand, but we don't recognize it, much less acknowledge it or do anything about it. Yeah, so much we just don't want to see. I I, I find on the the campaign trail, uh, people, uh, the, the supporters of Hillary Clinton have this picture of her. They want to believe what they want to believe. She happens to be exceptionally Harkish. I mean, she was responsible uh, for you know bringing uh, bombing Libya when a negotiated settlement was possible. The son of Gaddafi wanted that, and Americans, it just seems, want to see what they want to see, and and facts be damned. Especially, I mean, in so many ways that we just want to believe what we want to believe. And you're right. I mean, the military, that's what the world sees of us. The commanders must know that. The people in charge, they are U.S. ambassadors. I know they tell uh, the, the troops that, but as we opened up, as you say, the military is accorded carte blanche authority to possess and wield violence on behalf of the state. And that's got to get to some people's uh, minds and think, hey, you know, I'm, I'm super powerful. I can do what I want. But that, what that does to the security of the United States when the rest of the world sees that, even though we don't see it, they see it, it, it doesn't help our national security, no matter how many billions of dollars we spend uh, propping up, uh, you know, nuclear weapons that don't do anything, not supposed to do anything, really. Uh, it, it, we, we have to do something about that. And I'll tell you, growing up in the 50s and 60s, etc. I never thought my country that I was I'm still very patriotic and I'm obviously you are too Gregory Foster uh, I, I never thought that we would be in never mind blithely accept permanent war 
Yet this is where we are. You put it this way. Today we see increasingly blurred lines between the military, intelligence, police, and internal security functions. What does that look like, and why should that be of concern? So many people feel like, oh, I can surrender some freedoms to have more security. Talk about that a little bit there. Well, I think uh, especially when we talk about uh, the use of special operations forces, uh, for example, the types of missions they perform, and I, and I in fact, would make a, a distinction here that, uh, that I made in an earlier draft of this article, but it appeared to be a bit too uh, pedantic or obscure to... Uh, uh, to to include in the, in, in the final version. Uh, you got the freedom here. <laughs> okay, the Pentagon will repeatedly argue that it doesn't do covert action or covert operations. Covert actions uh, came under scrutiny by uh, covert means uh, both secret and deniable. And in the wake of uh, the intelligence um Flaps of the uh, of the early 1970s, uh, Congress instituted laws that uh, uh, that required presidents to report on covert activities in timely fashion, right. whatever that means. <laughs> but it was designed to focus principally on uh, the intelligence uh, community or the intelligence apparatus, particularly the CIA. The Pentagon resolutely declares that. What it does are clandestine operations, merely secret. And so those activities don't technically, in a legal sense, come under the reporting requirements required for covert activity. And yet we both recognize that semantically, uh, conceptually, there is little to distinguish between clandestine and covert. the types of activities that these secret forces are able to engage in, we, we, the general public, know virtually nothing about unless there is some um, fiasco that gets reported in the press. So these traditional lines that have been drawn between military and police activities, for example, you may have heard of the Posse Comitatus Act of seventeen mm-hmm. of night of eighteen eighty seven, for example, or eighteen seventy eight, whichever. Uh, after the Reconstruction period, uh, that law is designed to uh, prohibit uh, the use of the military from engaging in law enforcement activities. Uh, internal security functions uh, and intelligence functions as well. This is where. Uh, Organizations like the National Security Agency mm-hmm. and arguably the U.S. Northern Command come into play. And when you hear stories about domestic surveillance, mm. when you hear stories on occasion of the infiltration of uh, peace or anti-war groups, yes. of course, you recognize full well from our Vietnam-era experience that is nothing new. Uh, these are the types of things I... I mean when I'm talking about the blurring of lines yeah. between those activities that ought to be purely military and those that ought to be related to mm-hmm. police functions and intelligence functions and internal security functions. Yeah, and are we the people all of a sudden 
the enemy it it does seem like that quite a quite a bit the militarization of police local police getting tank like you know anti personnel carriers and and just these weapons of war it it just amazes me that that's where we are well well in fact it's important that you point that out the militarization of uh of police uh establishments uh is a subject itself that warrants a, a thoroughgoing yeah. discussion because it's obvious to us that uh, they are arming themselves to the teeth and uh, that is a further, uh, uh, let's say, uh, aspect of this whole scheme of militarization. Definitely so. So let's let's look at solutions. And I got to be, uh, <laughs> you, you talk about, you know, maybe it's unrealistic. Well, one of my favorite quotes from the 1968 French student and worker uprising uh, on the on the wall, on the graffiti, there was this quote, be realistic, demand the impossible. And that's how you make some progress. You know, you, you look at what you really want to get to, and then maybe you can have some, some incremental things. If you were uh, Secretary of Defense and had the budget, everything to, to reorganize and redirect uh, the military, <laughs> paint us that picture, please. I, I, I would appoint you if I were in that position. Well, again, uh, if, uh, if Secretaries of Defense actually uh, had the authoritative clout uh, to ah, act uh, unilaterally uh, without having to uh, mollify and cajole <laughs> and uh, engender consensus. Uh, <laughs> if I were in that position, again, the the most fundamental thing I would do is to set about trying to reorient the military from being a, a war-fighting force to one that uh, has as its principal purpose or purposes, peacekeeping, nation-building, humanitarian assistance, and disaster response. Because I am convinced that a war-fighting force and a force that does these other things, they are two completely different forces in terms of their mm. uh, force structure, their doctrine, their manning, uh, their psychological and emotional orientation, and the like. And I think that type of force would offer more potential strategic effectiveness right. than what we have now, because it would be a force that could uh, uh, anticipate and catalyze events, shape events, uh, before they mutate out of control, and we have to use the type of force we uh, have come to think of. But there also is a big... Uh, uh, psychological and educational component of what I do. One thing I do point out is that I think there are a number of um, behaviors or traits that, uh, quite candidly, characterize the military that need to be totally re-engineered. Aggression, intolerance, uh, authoritarianism, parochialism, congenital secrecy, uh, pronounced anti-intellectualism among them. Yes. Uh, but there also are a number of myths that uh, we need to disabuse, disabuse ourselves of concerning the military. And I, enumer I enumerate some of those. We, um, we are generally inclined to think that the military nurtures and rewards leadership. I would argue mm. that, uh, on the contrary, sure. it rewards 
dutiful followership. Uh, we think of it as an institution of disciplined individuals that encourages and instills discipline. In point of fact, these instances, these many instances of of social misconduct demonstrate indiscipline rather than mm-hmm. discipline. And, and finally, among others, um, uh, I think we generally accord uh, the military credit uh, for uh, demonstrating courage, but there are many, many instances, not least among senior military personnel of moral cowardice mm. that uh, we need to, to rectify. And there is much re-education well, that needs to go on. So we, we, uh, This has been a very, very informative, uh, particularly uh, impressive uh, discussion, I have to say. If people are interested in, in contacting you or, find, or looking at uh, more of your work, Gregory Foster, is there some place on the Internet to which you can point them? Uh, I can. I'm at uh, fosterg at ndu.edu. Uh, I would welcome hearing from... Uh, anybody who's interested in pursuing this subject at uh, greater length. Thank you so much for being with us today and for the extremely important work that you do. Thank you, Greg Foster. Thank you so much for having me. I enjoyed it. All right. Take care. We'll get there. We'll get there working together. Work on this military madness. 